0: So now I think we're in business, because I think that the light's on there. It is um, on. And I wanted to thank you for agreeing to talk about your time at Oxford University Medical School. Um, With me, I'm Peggy Chris. We're in the SCR at New College, Oxford. In fact, now it's the 1st of June 2012. So, Jim, you came to Oxford first, I think, as a consultant physician. No, no, no. Uh No,
1: I came (laughs) as a very junior, senior house officer. I'd better start at the beginning. Please do. Um, Undergraduate at St Andrews. Um, when it came, and of course the teaching hospital at St. Andrews at the time was the Dundee Oil Infirmary. And, and Dundee was the sort of place that, uh, I mean Winston Churchill, I think when he was um, um, member of Parliament for Dundee West, he was reminiscing about his time in Dundee and um, was sort of reflecting on the lovely Silvery Tay as he was on um, the Tay Bridgeline train, particularly when the train was pointing south. And I rather share those sentiments. And um, about uh, six months before um, I was due to do my finals, I met and, without very much um, hesitation, married or decided to marry Sheila, who was an undergraduate at St. Andrews reading zoology at the time. And uh, uh, in June of 1959, I took my finals um, and then we got married near Harrogate and two days later went back up to St. Andrews to pick up our degrees and one day after that got on the ship to go to Canada. Wow! And the reason for this was that I had made close friends with two particular individuals, one was a young woman called Ellen Stone, whose father was the Canadian ambassador to the Hague. And another was a chap called George Post, who was an economist, and they were both exchange students from Queen's in Kingston, Ontario. And they said, why don't you come across some house jobs there? Mm -hmm. So I wrote to them and they said, that's fine. And I joined uh, the cadre of the 1959 graduating class from Queen's University, Mm -hmm. doing house jobs or internships, as they were called, in the Kingston General Hospital. So we went off by sea and started work there. The idea was to stay a year and come back, see how things developed. And um, we ended up staying four, two in medicine in practicing as a junior, and uh, two in um, the laboratories of the then professor of medicine there, a man called Malcolm Brown, who was road scholar here in the. Late thirties, early forties, in the National Health Medicine in L. J. Wits's time. So when it, when I said I'd like to go back home, he, uh, Malcolm Brown, uh, wrote to Wits and said he had this young chap who would like to come back. Are there any slots? Wits said yes. There's an estate chair post I need to fill. So with no interviews, no <laughs> nothing <laughs> at all, I was deposited back in uh, here in Oxford in the summer of nineteen sixty-three. And I took over from Chris Payne, who was the outgoing senior house officer. Oh. And that was the beginning of another splendid friendship. Yes. And uh, a man called Dennis Gaff was a registrar. Yes, he was a
0: psychiatrist of That's his age. right. Yes.
1: Well, Dennis, yes. after about a year, decided he didn't want to do medicine after all. He wanted to be a psychiatrist. And Wits was very sympathetic to this. and thought it was important to get good people into psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, can I have his job? Yes. Much easier to have you than having to go through this palaver of advertising. Yeah, you see, yeah. <laughs> this is what happened in those days. Yes, yeah. And so I was Wits's last registrar, um, and he retired in nineteen sixty-five, and Paul Beeson from Yale took over the chair. And he was George Pickering's nominee, really, a little bit in the shadow of Osgooder. And I was Beeson's first um, registrar. Um, so I have served, quote, under all the nothing professors of in medicine ever. Gosh. And then with Beeson, um, I seemed to move and become a lecturer in medicine. Mm. And then a man called Francis Caird um, uh, went off to Glasgow to take the chair in gerontology there, and so I became medical tutor. And that must have been in the late 60s. And, uh, and it was that time, or maybe by, yes, I think it was probably 1970, would I take on the uh, directorship of clinical studies. Mm-hmm. So that's how I came to Oxford. Mm-hmm. And in those days, you got an honorary contract in medicine. So I was nothing above the medicine, with Sidney Truller, with my, um, Sheila Callender, um, Beeson, obviously, Donald Atchison, and John Badenock. And Beidnacht was the physician who was in private practice. And he was the one who would be doing all the domiciliary visits and bringing various people in, um, some of considerable significance, as it were. <laughs> and, uh, um, and so, uh, yes, I mean, that, that's how. And it was about this time, I guess, that you came to the medical
0: school. Absolutely. I think Michael Donnell interviewed me very He would have done. And yes. then when I came by uh, you were by, DC by that state. time was I line. was in that
1: slot. Yep. Um,
0: and that was seventy one, I think. Right.
1: But it wasn't until seventy-three four um that I moved to the health service mm-hmm. when Teddy Buzzard retired oh, yes. and I took his post. Yes. And that's when you remember me yes. as sort of my so old or whatever it was, yes. yes. Um so that's how I, that was my introduction to Watson, how it all happened.
0: Gosh, that's fascinating. I do indeed remember Slight Bain and recently met all of you as you yes. were. Yes, at yes, one of, the, one of the alumni, I think, as yes. well. You were a general physician, but I remember that you had a particular well, interest in your from from Wits, of Well, all that stemmed from Witts, of course, who whirling. was a
1: haematologist, oblique yeah. gastroenterologist, yes. when the two went in parallel because haematology of the 30s was largely to do with iron and B12, yep. and that was closely associated with the gut. So the two grew in parallel. I mean, in those days, there were no ologists. Uh, yes. They were all physicians. Yes. John Wagner, for example, did his DM thesis on steaterea, what was awesome. the then known as idiopathic okay. Um having to collect fetal facts for five days, and all this sort of stuff. And the capsule didn't come in, really, until the late 60s, yes. and revolutionized that, and gastric branches,
0: and all this sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. I remember Ruby Allen doing the first endoscopies in right. a little tiny room off the NBM corridor at the infirmary. Um, yes. Well,
1: Sydney Trula was, a I I mean, before fibre optics, and the Japanese were the first to develop it. Of course, it was all rigid, and uh, I mean, you see, properly, you try and buzzes around. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, uh, and Sydney got one of the very early fibre optic. Um, uh, scopes for looking at the stomach, and then it all developed from there. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, the interest in hematology was, was with field counter and wits, and then that sort of moved towards lymphomas and popular disease and myeloma, but always on a bed of what the Americans would call general internal medicine. Mm.
0: I'm very interested that you did your SHA jobs in Canada, so you would have seen. Medical training in St Andrews, and then gone to Canada, and then come back. What was the biggest? Were there many differences between Canadian medicine and English medicine at that time? And of course, Beeson was a cross fertilisation. Well, I I I wasn't aware
1: of any great differences, Mm. Um, the the scale of things was was very small compared to what it is now. Mm. the Queen's Medical School, was um, I think fifty intake, sixty intake a year, Mm. and Andrew at the time was. I think fifty in St Andrews, thirty in Dundee, and they came together. Mm-hmm. By that time, there'd been a certain amount of attrition, so mm-hmm. I think the graduating class was about sixty. Mm-hmm. So it was all on a very small, small scale compared with mm-hmm. now.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because it would be interesting to, to know how they differ nowadays, whether it's much or, or not. So that is very interesting. And you, w- please tell me something yeah. of your experience of arriving and working in Oxford, because it's rather—it's it's a sort of niche market. It's a very unusual place to practice, I imagine. You've already touched on the fact that... Well, it that was. Asked. And, of
1: course, it was all very small. Mm-hmm. You knew everybody uh, very quickly. And in the reactive infirmary, when you went for lunch as a junior, uh, there'd be a sort of table that the consultant sat at. But one well, got to know and back and the neurosurgeons, all in obstetrics and, um, um, uh, and the um, uh, Whitty in neurology and Spalding in neurology um, uh, and the Inez and Vert people and the eye people um, and the almanage, as it were, mm-hmm. yes. Yes. Um, and the matron. Yes. Um, so it was all uh, very tiny. Yes. And of course, we're talking about a time when the medical school intake was. You'll have to look this up, but it must have been of the order of, I don't know, 30. And uh, um, one significant thing that occurred there um, in George Pickham's time, when George Pickering went to Pembroke, and I think 1967, was that uh, he um, persuaded the, the Cambridge medical tutors to begin to patronise around it rather than London. And there was a very significant input from Cambridge in the mid-60s that made the tutors here uh, it, uh, rather take note. There would always been a little bit of tension between the the preclinical people and the clinical people, yeah. a lot to do with money, you know. Um, and many of the tutors in medicine at that time would say to them, "If you uh, uh, don't go to the renter. it's not anything like as good as Thomas and St. Bart, unless it was something peculiar." Um, uh, So, the Cambridge intake sort of made them sit up. Mm -hmm. Now, there were one or two notable exceptions to this, exactly from Bayley and quite a number. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, it was then that, suddenly, the attitude of the preclinical people changed. And in no time at all, Mm -hmm. we were having to require them to be interviewed to come into the red lift with a limited number of slots compete people, the Cambridge people, um, and that changed, that with a huge significance in the mid to late sixties.
0: That's very interesting. Yeah. Because I think word on the ground even now is that if you go to Cambridge for to your pre- you come to Oxford for your clinical, then you have sort of boxed and coxed and got got a good deal, as it were. Yes. So I think that even at, I you say even at student level. I mean at student level the, the word still is but also gives a good clinical training. So t- you did a stint as the director of clinical studies. Yes. Tell, us, tell us a bit about your time in this role, some of the enjoyments, some of the challenges, perhaps even some of the amusing times as you Well, one of the challenges
1: was that when I inherited it, Michael dunnell under pressure from the General Medical Council, had rejigged the clinical course and shortened it from three years to two and a half years. And I was faced with a, a rebellion um, uh, 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 on the grounds and particularly from the surgeons that that sort of destroyed what they considered was the real ethos of the Oxford clinical training. They were no people they joined firms and they stayed a bit and so on and so that had to be um, uh, reversed and I suppose one of my early, early tasks was to put it back to three years as well and then there was of course a, a gap in, um, uh, in terms of people qualifying, we had a fallow of six months. And that, uh, we advertised to London for that, and quite a little cohort of people came in from London, Some were very, very good, to fill those slots for that six months. Oh, um, that's fascinating. Yeah.
0: Because I remember the split intake and the split between Oxford and Cambridge, yes. which at that time was actually quite equal, about 25 each, I think. Was Ops it at that Cambridge, time, in my yeah. and then, And then the London, and, the people from Scotland, so we had. There were a few people
1: trickled out from St Andrews, and of course, what you had to have to be admitted here was an honours degree. Mm. So that really went Oxford, Cambridge, London, if you have done an honours degree; St Andrews mm. again, yeah, if you'd done an honours degree. Mm. So
0: that that was quite a challenge to reverse. Yes, it got. Um,
1: but you know, it was quite straightforward. Yeah. The um, I mean, what I found at the time was. The support on the surgical side was from people like Tim Till. Oh,
0: that's fascinating, who was. Um, I, to
1: was a, surgeon. I know, Possibly shouldn't say this, but um, Allison was a slightly sort of awkward at times, I found. And uh, Tim Till was the individual I took advice from. Because, bear in mind, I was very junior at that time, mm-hmm. yes, you know, with, a, with a post of considerable authority. And so you, your relationships with the, the, the people who were considerably senior to me uh, were pretty important.
0: Yes.
1: And uh, now I feel I owe like quite a lot to him, and served in the medical school without realising it. Yes, I think yes. he
0: was one of, one of the teachers that I had, whose teaching I still remember vividly. He's a
1: sort of individual people do remember.
0: Yes, yes. and because he lived such a long time as well afterwards, I Indeed. Think his influence was right. felt, yes. Yes. people yes. felt that. I think yes. also his reminiscences of medicine during the war yes. were very yes. important. Yes,
1: he very distinguished yes. uh, war, I in and
0: that sense. That all links in with the, with, the, with the getting to know everybody across the board, literally, at the dining table. I think that that's that yes. something that we have. And seen. the
1: other thing, you see, I mean, most of the conversation would be shop, yes. in a sense, discussing yes. patients. And it wasn't difficult to um, know. Mm-hmm. You, I remember Dick Guy, Senior Registrar yes. on Neurosurgery, for yes. example. And uh, in those days, I mean, um, you know, we didn't have all this modern imaging. Um, and the uh, neurological diagnosis, the first thing was to get the anatomy mm-hmm. right, and then try and get the pathology after that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, neurosurgeons were pretty good at getting the anatomy right, mm-hmm. even abetted by Philip Sheldon. That's John Reynolds' father law anyway, incidentally. Mm-hmm. And Philip Sheldon was a, um, a neuroradiologist. Isn't, well, he, he lives in Cumbria now. Mm-hmm. And he had this extraordinary ability to squirt a bit of dye into the crotchets. And through this massive fog, <laughs> he was sent uh, as a tumour there, a blush, Was an athlete, there, yeah. yeah. and so on. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes.
0: So well, I'm glad to know that he's still alive. Yeah. Extraordinary man. Yes. Very civilised. Very very, very very. nice to see yes. the two. Yes. Yeah. So that's something, uh, what, what was enjoyable about the job? Obviously, it was quite demanding. And uh, well, yes, it was, one, because
1: you had your, you know, you, it wasn't full time. You had to do your firm yes. job at all at the same time. Yeah. So a lot of it went on in the early evenings and this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But no, the enjoyment was the association with the medical students. um, And you you got to know them when when the numbers were so small quite well. I mean, obviously, you got to know the very good ones, and those were causing a bit of difficulty (laughs) from
0: time to time. Those a few of those. Well, we're we're currently organising a reunion at 40 years from those who qualified in 1972. So I hope they'll be getting in touch with an invitation information together. I hope so. Together. That'd be rather nice. And that's yes. Terry Duffy, Peter Burge, yep. Les Glazevich. Yep. That cohort. Yes, I remember all of them. And they're going to um, come together the Oxford and Cambridge and everywhere yes, else intake. So yes. we hope that that I think we've got targeted about there must be about eighty people and we hope to get 50, 60 to come. Right. So sure. Um, sure. so I, I hope that'll be in the in the afternoon. And amusing times, were there any was there anything you particularly remember as oh, being there um, must have
1: been but um, oh, I'm blocking yeah. on a name and yeah. I shouldn't have their name so well. The um, orthopaedic surgeon,
0: uh, Robert, uh, Robert Duffy. No, 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 no. no. The uh, younger
1: one, he was a medical student at the time. Ah.
0: Oh, uh, okay. You know him well. But not Peter Birch.
1: No, no, younger than that. Younger yeah,
0: uh, Peter uh, um, He was a, must have been a student. Yes. yes, and he yes.
1: became a lecturer um, right. in the Department of Orthopaedic Surgery. Aha. Uh-huh. And there was a few difficulties. And
0: how irritating. Well, if we think of something else, it'll come back to us. So we talked about we touched on the fact that at the moment Oxford Philipps School is very popular with its yes, students. Still, yes. I, I wondered what do you think is important in its current success? Because I suppose it's managed to keep some things of value from well, of course, I'm, time. I retired
1: I, I, I mean, twelve years ago, so I lost touch with uh, precisely what happens. But I think the, uh, in, the the firm attitude, as it were, the, um, the 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 loyalty to firms was really very considerable, and um, I think that was quite valuable. One of the significant things, of course, in my direction of clinical College was the Green College thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about that. Um,
1: well, um, it was quite apparent that the um, the colleges at that time, were, some of them, I mean, some of them were tremendous, but some of them were less tremendous in the sense mm-hmm. that. They didn't do very much for the technical students. Mm-hmm. And um, we did, in 1972, suddenly have available to us the Tower of Wins, the observatory, mm-hmm. because the um, Nuffin Institute of Medical Research had moved up to Headington to the new hospital site. and was one of the first things to move. And um, I think it was, I remember it was a man called um, Trevor Aston, who was a historian at Corpus. And somehow he more or less said to us, look, the only way you're going to alter this attitude is to try and create your own foundation. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's how this idea was formed, really. Mm -hmm. And I was deputed to uh, write a paper to what was then the Nuffield Committee um, for the advancement of the medicine at a time when it was it sort of bypassed the general board of the university and reported straight to the ca- uh, abdominal council. Mm-hmm. And it was chaired by the vice chancellor or a nominee of the vice chancellor. Mm-hmm. So it was rather special in that sense. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the paper I wrote was advancing the case for the medical students. Of a new foundation that in code we call Radcliffe College. And then in the 1973 war, remember the the second Israeli Arab Israeli war? Yes. The economy collapsed. Um, three day week and all this sort of stuff, a yes. huge collapse of the economy. And the idea of raising money then just sort of we forgot about it. Until um, Paul Beeson was asked by Richard Doll if he might know someone who might be interested in this project. And um, he knew a chap called Gibson, uh, 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 who in turn uh, said, yes, I think I do, a chap called Cecil Green, who had declared to Gibson his wish to uh, do something in England before he died. Now, Green had been, I think, brought up in Manchester as a child. Mm-hmm. The family emigrated to Canada. Mm-hmm. He read physics at the University of British Columbia. Mm-hmm. I think this is right. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously had a distinguished career, and I think he probably had a career choice. Mm-hmm. Before the war, you want to go into commerce or you want academia, he chose commerce. Mm-hmm. And he developed mm-hmm. Texas Instruments and a great deal of money. And he was a considerable benefactor in North America and Canada and that has expressed his wish. Mm-hmm. So Richard Dole, um, I think, sent a print of the Tower of the Wind to him and asked him if he cared to come over and consider this. Wow. And he did. And I remember um, at Northern Gardens, um, because Richard Doll still lived in Northern Gardens mm-hmm. as readers, mm-hmm. um, we had this meeting, and John Leadingham's job was to advance the argument for Uh, The senior people, many of whom were very distinguished but had no collegiate association, and my job was to advance the argument for the clinical students. And um, I should say that I had taken a sort of straw poll of attitudes Mm. because Richard Doll had asked me to do this, and the signal I gave to Richard Doll everyone's keen and enthusiastic, let's go ahead. And, of course, that led to certain difficulties later on, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, which present uh, dean would uh, 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 know quite a lot about. Um, yes, it became quite a headache to us at the time. But, uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> there are ways and means, uh, some are. of them not always expected. Um, so, um, and I remember so well, um, Cecil Green and uh, his wife, Ina, sitting there, and uh, Lancaster had done a mock of the possible development of that site. And he suddenly turned to her and said, well, darling, shall we do it? She said, yes, let's. And,
0: and, so, yes. and then the
1: lawyers took over, yes. and the money was not to be available unless work had started oh, within about nine months, on the 1st of the mm. following year. Yes. And uh, people got their skates on, had to square it with the local authority the heritage people, conservation people, and so on and so forth.
0: Yes. And then there were uh,
1: interesting conversations about the title. We, we wanted Radcliffe, of course. Well, that was totally unacceptable. Could we have Radcliffe Green? Nope. Could we have Green Radcliffe? Nope. We got rid of the H Green, Cecil H Green, because that's what he wanted. And uh, finally got rid of the Cecil <laughs> <laughs>
0: I wonder what he'd make of Green Templeton, but uh, that's, that's, I think Green Templeton is actually very dignified. Yes, I do yes. too. I don't
1: think there would be any great thing. He would see the logic of all that. Yes. yes. Course, so so that, yes. Was, that was quite significant and, and, and important in the early 70s. Yes. And uh, Alistair Buckham, I mean later, and this was after I handed it over to John Lettingham, of course, Alistair Buckham was president of Over the House. And a cadre of medical students who had been, as it were, seduced by the Osler House trial and all this, suddenly found themselves coming into a building site. And uh, you can understand why they were a bit frustrated. And so that was a sort of seed of rebellion that Alistair Buckham, who was extremely clever, but mm-hmm. To us, extremely irritating uh, causes no end of headache.
0: So he—he he was the um, the grit in the in the, in the oyster that oh, very much so. the pearl of the new.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, there was a, a real concern, and that's what. Uh, and the concern was, people did not want a medical ghetto. And Richard Doll had absolutely no intention that that should happen. Um, there was a problem to solve, i.e., clinical students who are not being looked after and many people of civil distinction with no collegiate association. That had to be solved. But right away, he was bringing in people from other disciplines, from sociology and so forth. Um, But uh, 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 Maybe this is my interpretation, but uh, what seemed to happen is, suddenly, the university realized they had a medical school for some significant. And suddenly, the colleges that showed little interest in electing um, readers in this half and the other, suddenly it began to show an interest, and uh, they were sort of competing with each other to take some of the new appointments, which was a rather uh, a slightly perverse result, but it was a rather nice result.
0: That's very interesting because in a, in, a, in a way. I think both Oxford and Cambridge were, were a little reluctant to embrace what they saw as the professional, if not to say the trade, of clinical medicine. Certainly when I was at Cambridge as an undergraduate, we were told which of the physiology lecturers were clinically qualified, right. and they, were, they, they had to work harder yeah. to maintain their academic status and credentials as clinicians. Really? Yeah. And yet Oxford, which has always had its stronger bias towards the humanities, has probably ended up with a more rounded. Approach. Oh I think
1: so. No, I think in terms of that sort of sort of development, yes. Oxford was probably ten, fifteen, twenty years ahead of India. But that was because of the Nuffield Foundation before the war and the yes. determination that the clinical school after the war should continue to have undergraduates and not just concentrate on research.
0: That's very interesting because I haven't thought of that quite so clearly mm. as now you mentioned it, but Nuffield would have been very pleased I think that his Benefactions would have contributed to the success of a trading organization with the emphasis on people? Oh, I think so. I, I so think there's a little doubt about that. Because one of the
1: things that I noticed when I came was, that, particularly with Beeson, mm-hmm. um, there was no hostility, there was no tension between the university side and the health service side. Mm. And you walked down that long corridor and it didn't, it didn't really think as to who would pay by the university or who would pay the health service. And as things developed, there were people on the university side who were doing a great deal of clinical work, and people on the health service side who were doing a great deal of research. And there were quite a number of examples. And it wasn't until roughly the time I was retiring that this was required to be separated and defined. And the old traditional not for not, in other words, you know, you grew up together and if you have this unwritten, undefined relationship, it worked.
0: Excellent. I suppose yeah, my final question was going to be what's your view of the present state of affairs of medicine within
1: oh, the university? I think, I mean, sitting on the sidelines now, mm. it gives me great satisfaction to see this huge. Debi- I mean, the, the answer to strength is new, people sort of forget that. Um, and it really didn't take off properly until after the war. And it, it was pretty small. I mean, after all, it was a medical school ta- tagged onto a county hospital. And it began to really grow with George Pickering, and then Beeson, and then, of course, with uh, Ben Wetherall and uh, Peter Morris. Really sort of went up exponentially. And now even at the rate is even greater. and you now have a medical school, or we have a medical school, of world Singapore, without a doubt. And it couldn't have, that claim couldn't have been made in the city.
0: Mm, That's very interesting. And yet, keeping sight of, of, of the people within, and I think Alistair Buckingham as himself an ex-student, as John Bellis, of course, yes. has, that they understand what, what how the students tick and the fact that the students are Absol- a resource. Absolutely
1: so. I mean, both those individuals, do that because I remember John Bell coming into the clinical school, and, and there's a the story behind that. And John Stein telephoned me um, and said he has this young chap, Bell, who was a Rhodes Scholar, wrote the Canadian lightweight and should chap, didn't want to go back to Canada, did his clinical wanted to stay. I said, Well, John, the list is full, but send him over and have a word. And it became pretty self evident that that list had to be bent. Of course, in those days, even me as a very young director of clinical studies, study, didn't have to ask when it was needed. And so he came in. Nobody asked any questions. And I should say at this stage that Richard Dole was marvellous to work under. He just gave you total authority, and if you needed help, you got it quickly and reliably. Um, it was an excellent relationship, there when I look back on it.
0: That sounds that, and I suppose that epitomizes the, the strength of individuals making decisions individually and then agreeing them mm. with their collective important colleagues. Mm. And the fact that things can happen clearly and then effectively, rather than always pulling remotely that some things not happening, which I think that's one of right. the problems. Yes. And and the maybe moves, as you know, now we have at any one time five hundred clinical students because there's hundred and sixteen in each of three years. Um, but there's a suggestion that we might, if we can, might even opt to get a bit smaller. What would you feel about that? Oh, I
1: think uh, 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 people have worked very hard to keep this place small, and I think that's been very good for the institution. Um, And uh, um, 500 in the medical school is a lot to handle. I mean, you couldn't have done it with the structures we had when I was doing it. Then the whole medical school was about 150, 200, this sort of size, um, uh, yes. Mm.
0: Mm. Fascinating. It's it's, for me personally, it's fascinating to look back yes. to, to hearing about the times just before... No, no, mai, I, I, no, I, I, no. I was
1: very confident, because I'm, I mean, I'm a great it's huge privilege to have sort of been witness no. yes. to this development from something that was pretty small and Nationally insignificant, but no less a high quality, pretty small to something now of world significance. Yeah.
0: And thank you very much for talking about it because it, it's to get individual perspectives on things that are happening is part of the project, and it's really, really important, I think, that we gather things at first hand and talk to people about how it felt at the time. You. So you know, so so I, and I can't remember the name of the orthopedic registrar. Bulstrow. Oh, um, Hooray, hooray,
1: we've got it. Yes, uh, Bullstrode caused me a few headaches from time to time, but they're really quite funny. There was once, I remember, I think it was April the 1st, when they were experimenting with traffic systems in the city. And uh, Bullstrode had recognised that if he switched one sign, he'd get all the traffic going in a circle. And he did this. Um, and uh, and uh, it took the police about sort of half an hour to tweak what had happened. Um, and another thing he did, one May morning there were footprints all the way down Magdalen Tower. And I think I had to sort of quote the discipline him for that. They're very vague memories. But these were points of huge amusement. So no, it, it, it was a bit of a headache at times, but you know, it was great fun to have around.
0: <laughs> and I think to, to incorporate someone with his um, ability to make fun but also oh, to I make remember. history. I remember. because so, um, Chris, whatever fireworks he lets off, literally and metaphorically, has driven through two of the really important projects in my view um, to do with medical education, that still still flourish. One is MedEd, with the year six students teaching the year four students. Whether I see. They can. Oh, I didn't
1: know about that. And the other
0: is training the trainers, which is the initiative from at university level. Yes. To. Um, inspire those people who have been teaching, some of them for a very long time, with new ways that they might approach. For instance, interactive seminars and interactive history. And I think that Chris has picked up those ideas and in his own way has also carried them through because he has delivered many of these courses himself. So I think that I your, don't think your choice, then, was, was very, yeah. from my yeah. point of view, was very apt. So, uh, so that, we, that
1: decision yeah. has um, furthered the interests of the medical school, you think, quite considerably? this.
0: And I think a, a, wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful example of talent, wittingly or unwittingly, being spotted and fostered and tolerated and in some ways <laughs> even encouraged and certainly remembered.
1: Certainly remembered.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> And if I do that, it will play and record. And this is me talking to Jim about Tindrick.
1: Yes, well, uh, no, I, I, I was um, uh, portrayed, um, uh, not entirely um,
0: uh, um, kindly. kindly,
1: but uh, very funny. Because you know, it was, I walk around with my head on one side. Of course, this was portrayed in a very exaggerated fashion. And the explanation was that most of his brains are on the right side or whatever it is. And, of course, my myopia was another uh, one to go for. because they used to tease me for holding an electrocardiograph about two inches from my nose in order to see it properly. And then yeah, they would be concerned them. that I'd get into a large motor car and go off to... More than the master to do an outpatient with three of them in the back. <laughs> and I think that caused a bit of a sort of amusement. Um, yes.
0: Very good they are they are wickedly observant, but they usually stop short of being of being cruel, I think oh no, they're absolutely nothing cruel at all, at all. At all. Yeah.
1: With, yeah, no, very good humour. the sort of thing I you know could take the girls to the children too, and they'd yes. love to.
0: Yes. yes, and oh, yes. I, I actually retired from being senior member of Tindrick because it got beyond, for me beyond a joke that they, it was difficult for them to keep the humour at what I would think was oh, really? acceptable at family yeah. level. Yeah. And I used to say to them, the cruder it is, the funnier it has to be. You yeah. have to be really careful. Yes. You don't go into Well, of course, when
1: I know. first came, Tindric mm-hmm. was all men. Yes. So the yes. nurse parts were taken by men yes, in nurse's uniform with balloons at the and the bosoms and all that. And popping of balloons. And, the and that was, I mean, some of that was pretty crude, actually. Um, that was often not family stuff. And when the girls came in, it, that actually had an effect of cleaning it up and it, making it, show we say, family friendly. Mm,
0: that's very interesting. Yes. I, I used to remember as a student, Meeting the consultants in a different light, and also the consultants' wives, because most of them, of course, were men, but we got to know consultants' wives. Well, you did, because, you see, in those
1: days, the firms were small. And, um, uh, I mean, uh, in fact, Sheila, my wife, was was very good at this. We were entertained in Canada by Malcolm Brown. I remember we spent Christmas with their family. Because you know, we we all from home. and um, I think Sheila felt it was so important to her that we should continue to do this. Yes. And as a registrar on the NBM, we used to do it regularly with the firm when yes. we lived in um, Hampton Poyle, and then we moved to Earl of thought we had much more room. Yes. And uh, when Slight and I joined up, we used to alternate, yes. um, and. Uh, Every six months the whole firm would come to one of us. um, In those days, with the medical students as well. But later on we had to sort of, we couldn't do it because the numbers got too big. And I think it began to fall apart when there were so many housemen coming through the firm. It wasn't having two for six months like it used to be. There'd be two every two months times two, as it were. Um, And so it became rather less personal. But that's where wives did come in, and some of them were really terrific. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yes, now I remember it must have been, he just likes turn my year. Right. Because I remember we're I going, remember going, again, going to And mm. um, That is interesting because I think that has become, I think that that has now largely disappeared. I suspect it
1: must have done.
0: Yes. And did you carve the turkey? Oh, yes. Yes. In so the Oratlium o- yes. Oh, I must
1: tell you this story. It was really quite funny. We had a Labrador at Old White Hill, um, and we had to have the rat man in, because you no know, there were horses there and horses bring rats. In the, bay. And the rat man came, and um, um, I remember his name was Mrs. Sparrowhawk, Hawk. and Mrs. Sparrow Hawk put some um, warfarinized grain down the crevice she was eating. And Charlotte, the Labrador, Sheila thought, might have eaten it. and I said, "Well, I don't have know knowing. But if she has, in 48 hours' time, we'll see. She would go off her leg and did that. And I got home about 7 o'clock with a collapsed dog. And Bill Mill was a vet in Hampton Pond who we knew very well. Yes. Uh, now, I knew I couldn't find a vein on a collapsed dog, but he could. So phoned him and said, well, I don't have any vitamin K. And so I then roared down to the Radford into the newly um, uh, constructed coronary care unit on Richard Lower. And Sister Loa was the sister in charge. And I told her what had happened. And so she gave me the coronary care supply of vitamin K. I wrote back, got over Bill Mill, who poked it into this dog, and it recovered. It obviously had a retrofacral hemorrhage, you see. This is what happens if you've got too much water, even in humans. And then that Christmas, Sister Loa, who was one of the very traditional battle-axe type sisters, Invited the dogs in, uh, the dog in. So Charlotte was on the ward, wandering up the ward to the Christmas tree where the present had been prepared for it. And it was at that time that, yes, we did carve the turkeys, and the children, my children, would, would issue the food. And Tim, aged about sort of seven or eight, would go around with the beer. Um, health and safety had hardly made any impact at all then, imagine now a Labrador wandering up a medical <laughs> ward to the Christmas
0: <laughs> well, That's an absolutely delightful story, and I'm very glad that we've captured it. Thank you.
1: As long as